0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Walls Dairyport. Over 65 years of ice cream artistry. Main Street, Bucksport.
1: It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next.
0: Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media soundbites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with the help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Secret, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. On today's show, we're talking with three Maine authors. It's summer after all, when lots of people are trying to catch up on their reading, and there is a lot of great Maine-based literature to choose from, especially when it comes to the coast. So we wanted to bring a few of these authors into the studio to explore how living and working in Maine impacts their work. Our guests today represent very different genres, including guidebooks, history and science, and love stories, but all three authors share a love of Maine, and especially the Maine Coast, which will be so much fun to explore today. So let's introduce our guests. Um, Catherine, Sh- Catherine Schmidt writes nonfiction, primarily about science, nature, and the environment, and she works as a science communication specialist with the Scudic Institute at Acadia National Park. Hi,
2: Catherine. Hi, Natalie. Great to have you. Great to be here.
0: Hope Rowan is a writer of guidebooks and stories of the outdoors. She's a freelance cartographer and works as a GIS specialist at the Center for Community GIS. Hi, Hope. Hi. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Great. Um, and finally, Barbara Kett Lawrence, our novelist, who first visited Mount Desert Island in 1948 and in 1979 became a year-round summer person. That perspective grounds her novels, which grew out of a study where she looked at the influence of culture on aspirations on Mount Desert Island. She's written seven other books and many articles on a wide range of topics, and we're excited to have you here, Barbara.
3: Thank you so much, Natalie. I'm
0: I'm delighted to be here. Great. Um, So, uh, yeah, this is going to be great. I'm excited to talk about all of your work and your relationship to the Maine Coast and how it connects to your writing. Um, So why don't we start with having you guys each... Um, sharing what your books are about and how you how you got to to, to write them. And make sure to say the names of your books, because I'm sure our listeners are going to want to hear. So let's start with Barbara.
3: Thank you. Uh, I have two books that are set on the main coast. The first is Islands of Time, and it's narrated by the heroine of, of these two books, Becky, who's a summer kid who comes to Northeast Harbor and falls in love with a fisherman's son in the 50s, and that is not allowed. Um, And so it's her story. And then later uh, I decided I wanted to write Ben's story. And so Ben's story, the other island, Ben's story, um, is obviously his story, and he lives on Little Cranberry Island. And um, I gave him an instant master's in marine biology because I wanted to explore what was happening with the fisheries, and so a great deal of it is about that. But all of this springs from... Uh, The fact that I fell in love with Matt Desert Island in Maine in 1948,
0: and I still feel that way. What I I loved about your books was that intersection between, really, the human story within the setting of the Maine coast. I felt like the Maine coast really came alive, so I'm looking forward to talking about that a little bit with you during the show. Good. Good. Um, Hope, how about you? Tell us what your books are. Not love stories, but maybe in some ways...
1: (laughs) Them in some obscure ways, I suppose they're love love stories. Love stories about Maine. Yeah. Um, but they're children's books, so they're children's hiking guides. Um, the first one uh, was I was published in 2017. This was Ten Days in Acadia, a kids' hiking guide to Acadia National Park, um, and it is the story of. A, 12-year-old girl named Hattie who went on a 10-day vacation with her family to Acadia, and each day they go on a different hike, and so each day she, she writes in her journal each day, and so it's telling the story of her family's vacation, but embedded in that is a hiking guide. So each day describes a different hike. Um, and then just recent, just this spring, I published uh, sort of a, a sequel to that, which was 10 Days in the Katahdin Region. So that heads up north, and it's the same idea. And our family goes, to, uh, heads north this time for their vacation in London, and It's and it's the same idea. Um, so I, you know, I, I first came to myself, I first came to Acadia, one on the main coast One basically before I could walk my family started camping um, up on on a desert island um, with me in a crib which I gave them great credit for and uh, I would you know hike the trails on my dad's shoulders and it's the only place we all fell in love with it and it's the only place we ever vacationed and and I just always had such memories of the place and I ended up going to school in Maine my undergrad I was from Colby and I came back to MDI for my graduate degree at College of the Atlantic and I've stuck around ever since so it's certainly um, Acadia and the Maine Coast in general certainly had a big
2: impact on my life great thanks Hope great to have you here
0: um, and Catherine how about you
2: Um, I have three books, all of which feature the Maine coast. Uh, My first book is called A Coastal Companion, A Year in the Gulf of Maine from Cape Cod to Canada. And that's an almanac-style book where there's an entry for every day of the year about seasonal phenomena like bird migration and what's flowering and blooming above and beneath the sea. And then it also features historical um, moments on certain dates And it's illustrated by two different main artists and features um, poems by 12 different main poets. So it was a nice collaboration. Um, It was really enjoyable during book tour to share the stage with many of the poets who were featured in the Mm -hmm. book. Um, My second book is The President's Salmon. Uh, Restoring the King of Fish and Its Home Waters, um, and that was published by Down East in 2015. And that's a um, natural and cultural history of the Atlantic salmon, um, primarily focused on the Penobscot River watershed. So it's also an environmental history of the Penobscot River. And my third book is Historic Acadia National Park, also a cultural and natural history of Acadia.
0: We have an Acadia and Mount Desert Island theme going on with this group. That's great. Um, Catherine, I don't know if I should admit this publicly on the radio, but your year in the Gulf of Maine has been um, in our bathroom basket of books (laughs) for all the years since it's published it. I'll take that as a compliment. And, uh, and Hope, your books are especially exciting to me because I have a 12-year-old, and um, so we, we had the opportunity to go up to the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Park uh, a few months ago with our 12-year-old, and it was super useful to be able to dive into some of the ideas and in your insider's perspective. Um, so the three of you have uh, really different genres, we were talking about this earlier, um, and how that, that you know, makes our conversation um, go in a lot of different directions from a literary perspective. But the one thing that really knits all of your writing together is this connection to the main Coast, in particular Acadia, but I think it's larger than that. Um, And yeah, I was wondering if you guys could could speak a little bit to that.
3: Barbara? I I think there's another connection. I think each of us really cares about research and getting the facts right. You can never get the facts right, but you can get them as right as you can get them if you work very hard at it. And I think that that's something we share as well as this deep love of Maine, Maine's people, Maine's places, um, culture, way of being. And that's really what I was trying to
0: write about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Say more about that, the culture and way of being piece that you were trying to reflect.
3: I think that... um, I, I was I was in the real estate business on Matt Zert for a long time. My backgrounds in sociology and anthropology. I began to be worried about the relationships between summer people and year-round people, and what was happening to year-round culture, which has some enormous strengths uh, in terms of education, of of mentoring kids. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could talk about the strengths of that culture. And I began to see, particularly when I went back to graduate school and I was driving off island, I was at BU to do my doctorate, and I, I was driving off island at six in the morning, and nobody else was driving off, but there was car after car after car. It's only gotten worse. That was in 1993. So I think the inequities, uh, uh, financial inequities between the culture, two cultures are are important. Uh, but I think there's also different values and ways of being that are important that, that we're in danger of, of losing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, though the three of you have really different genres, this issue is one that kind of gets touched on all of your work. So Catherine, is a writer of science and natural history and an, an environmental history, it it weaves in because it's part of the story of the main Coast.
2: Yeah, I mean, at the core, I think there is something that all of the if you want to call them different cultures, share. And that is a love of the coast of Maine and of the place and of the landscape and the water. And so um, we may have not have the same language and ways to talk about that and sort of um, present that. but. At the core, I think that's there. And if we could, could talk about it more or find ways to have those conversations, I think that that could really help the division and help with some healing. Um, and the other thing that it says to me is that it makes the protected places all the more important because without the park, without the conservation areas and the work of conservation organizations on the coast of Maine, people would not have access to that beauty and nature that's so inspiring. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, hope. How about you? Yeah, uh, I, I, you know, I. I,
1: It's funny because right now, being in the the middle of the summer, and of course, the traffic is worse than ever than any other years. The report, recent reports say, um, on MDI and. uh, and so it's always sort of I always feel I admit a little bit mixed that well here I wrote guidebooks that are encouraging people to come mm-hmm. to this place that I sort of in the middle of the summer I sort of want people to stay away because I want it to myself um, but yeah it is there's so much it has so much to offer for so many different people so there is you know there's and there's so much um, I think it is a question of finding that balance um, because I do want it I think it's important for people to experience the, the outdoors and it's a beautiful place for people to come to so um, it's a way to f- how, how do you manage those hordes of people that are coming and the impact that it has on a place because that is really important for people to have that experience, um, especially kids these days. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I wrote these hiking guides is to get kids outdoors and to experience nature because a lot of kids just don't have that these days. Um, you know, one of the things I loved growing up camping. Was that I didn't have to go inside at the end of the day. I mean, how great was that? Usually, you know, gets at the end of the day, you gotta go in and camping, you don't have to do that. But for kids today, that's a less common experience. They're inside on their devices and and their screens and busy with um activities and they don't uh, get out as much so to be able to experience nature i think it's really important for kids because that's how they learn to care about these places and be good stewards of them later and also hopefully to appreciate what it does offer for people's livelihoods too when the fisheries um of course are important and to, to sort of get a little glimpse of that too at the same
3: time i think is also important I, I agree with all of that, but it's a terribly difficult balance, and when you have 60% of the people working on, uh, you know, who work on Mount Desert can't live there, and a can't is the interesting word, because I'm not sure that that's the case, that research didn't show that, but it but nevertheless, you have miles of people leaving the island at the end of their day, so there's there's an imbalance economically. And I agree with you also about the, the preserves. We we have to preserve, conserve. We have to find our our place where we're together, uh, and where we can agree and protect and and save these places. But that raises an interesting question of are we also preserving the culture? Are we putting it under glass? I don't think that's the way to to accomplish that, but I don't know how to protect uh, people from being driven away from where they have lived for generations because they can no longer afford to pay the prices that summer people can pay easily. There was one moment where this really came to a head for me when I was in the real estate business and a local person wanted to list their house, I thought it was a $70,000 house, very nice ranch, very nice place. Asked what they were thinking. They were thinking $250,000 because of its location in the town. I sold it that afternoon for $250,000 to summer people, who would wonderful people, but who would use it for about three weeks of the year.
0: Yeah. Um, so we've jumped right into the really sort of complex... Uh, dilemmas related to the main coast, and I'm curious to hear from all of you how you came to writing as one way to try to get um, some perspective on the, the places that you care about, um, the people that you care about, and the the history that you care about and the culture that you care about. How did how did writing happen for you guys, Catherine?
2: Um, I can't. I mean, I think I've always wanted to write. Um, I do have degrees in science, so I sort of chose the science path first and then decided that I could do more for the earth by writing than by researching. Um, But science informs my writing. And I think my first book, A Coastal Companion, the choice to do that book, came out of a very real need for information about what goes on in your backyard if you live <clears throat> on the coast, there were a lot of backyard nature and field guides for woodsy backyards in New England, um, but nothing for people who had saltwater um, in their neighborhood. And so, um, myself and my um, colleague Susan White at the time at Maine Sea Grant just saw that there was a need for this book, and so that's where the idea came out of it. And then, incorporating art. And poetry is a way to reach more people um, who might not necessarily think that they're interested in science or nature, but they might be interested in poetry or, or artwork. And so it was a way to expand the audience for that information.
0: How about you, Hope? How did you come to writing? I think I came to it through a rather uh,
1: circuitous fruit uh, it's not something i i mean I wrote in school, but it's not it was not my focus at school and I always enjoyed writing um when I was younger um but it was actually really it was through um through mapping that I came to writing so I'm a map maker and so when I was first thinking about the hiking guides um and uh I thought, well, and I decided on a kids' hiking guide. I've worked with kids, and I realized there actually isn't hiking guides out there for kids. There's hiking guides for the parents and where to take the kids, but not for kids Mm -hmm. themselves. So it was sort of a way for kids to understand maps and do something that was directly to them. So it it came sort of that started through this mapping side of it. But then I got, the more I thought about it, the more I got excited about the writing aspect of it, because I do like that, and I love... I like writing, and I enjoy stories, and I enjoy telling stories, and particularly stories related to place, um, I think are very important. Mm -hmm. I was just reading, um, I've been reading this book um, called On Trails by Robert Moore, which has been fascinating, and uh, he's quite a good writer myself, uh, himself I find, and I was just reading about how uh, the Cherokees in the East, not so much the Cherokees out West, but the ones in the East who hadn't been displaced, all their stories, instead of just saying in the woods... Little Red Riding Hood went through was walking through the woods. It's all about specific places. They will say these particular woods or that particular stream or this particular mountain peak. Um, and all their stories are tied to specific places. And all of these specific places have stories and legends around them. And I was thinking about how I wish I'd sort of had that perspective or thought of that when I was, when I was writing my books, because really that's what they are. They're stories about specific places. But I think I actually, even though I didn't have that, um, really that thought specifically in my head, I think really that idea is how I approach writing these books, is that it's stories about place and specific places and what these specific places can mean for different people.
3: You remind me that Maine farmers used to name their rocks <laughs> and I I love stories. I also love research. I'm ambidextrous, and I think I'm pretty much bifurcated. I love both. And I start. I always liked to write in high school, and then when I uh, did my doctorate, I had to pick a topic in an area, and I was living on Mount Desert, so that was clearly the the most logical place and the one I loved the most. And then I finished my graduate work, and I was hired by the Annenberg World Trust to uh, work out of Boston. So I did that for many years, and um, frankly, I just missed Maine. And so Islands of Time comes from being away from this place, and it's my love story. In fact, I think you know some of the people who've read it have called it a love story to the people and places of Maine, um, and it was a story I thought needed to be told and very much anchored to specific places and, in, and also to some specific people who gave me permission to be part of the novel. It was part of my transition to try a novel. I'd never tried writing a novel before. Um, and I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed the research for it. And then when I had a chance to write the second of these two, there will be a third, I hope, um, I I love, re- I love the process of research I love, for instance, finding a brilliant article about fishing and the history of Mount Desert Island that happened to have been written by Natalie Springle and so I called her up and that started a, a long conversation and friendship and so I enjoy the research for a novel um, but I also enjoy telling the story and for me it has to be anchored to place because place is just part of the story it's what did, forms the bedrock of the story
1: It's funny, uh, a lot of my research, I enjoyed the research for my book, I would joke about how I have to go research my book this weekend, which meant going off for
2: a hike. Yes, exactly. My research yesterday consisted of going to um, take photos to illustrate a story I'm working on, and then I um, caught up with a guy who's studying moths um, in Acadia National Park, and he doesn't even start his field work until 9 (laughs) o'clock at night, and so that was pretty not a bad day at the office Um, but Natalie I do think we should acknowledge because Barbara brought it up that you're a writer too um, and you do write about the coast so I think you should feel free to join us um, (laughs) on our side of the conversation great thank you thank you
0: yeah I do enjoy writing Um, if you are just joining us um, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and and streaming online at weru.org and um, our show today, we're having a conversation with three main authors um, with a particular love of the Main coast. Um, and uh, one thing that, that we've touched on, but I want to dig in, is this question of research and how you go about research. And um, especially given the different perspectives or the different sort of genres that you represent, you know, fiction based in place, environmental history, science history, and a guidebook. All and having looked and read much of your writing, um, all of it is steeped in fact. Um, and, and I'm curious to hear more about the writing process.
2: Um, sure. So especially the research process. Yeah. Actually. So um, there's sort of two two big pieces when I research. One is I I read what other people have written about the subject. Um, and I recently was talking with a writer where it became apparent that that writer did not do that. And it's just really hard for me to comprehend if you have a subject. Like, I want to know what other people have written about it, both so that I can be different and take a new perspective, and also because that's informing, that's research as well, because they've done research. And then the other important piece is the primary literature. So um, in science, that would be published Journal articles, so research articles that are published in scientific journals. So, going to the actual source of the science itself rather than someone's translation of it. Um, And then the same would be true of archival material. So, the closer you can get to someone's own words, the better. So, um, a, a good day for me researching is either in the field, as I just described, or in a special collections department in a library or museum. Um, where I'm looking at specimens, say, of butterflies that were collected in the 1880s or birds that were collected in the 1880s, like the actual animals from that long ago. Or I'm reading someone's... you know handwritten um scripted ink on pages from 100 150 years ago or in the main state archives looking at per- petitions from fishermen who are asking that the fishways be opened and that dams not be built because they're affecting the fisheries and when you see the actual ink and their and their signatures it sends a message you know it just sort of really is powerful
0: yeah Barbara, I'm seeing you
3: nod. Well, all of that resonates with me. And and actually, out of all the books I've written, most of them are nonfiction. So I come from a background of you know, training in sociology and anthropology, so I do all of that. I mean, I'm working on one now about my British family during World War II, and I've I've been all over the world researching, I mean, in, from my desk, <laughs> not, not literally. Um, but I would add to that, Interviews, focus groups, one on one talking, and sometimes just random conversations. Um, I think the first thing that I have to do in any kind of research I do is say, okay, what are. First, I do a lit review, which is what you're talking about. But but that's a literature literature review. review. What have Mm -hmm. people written? but I also have to look at myself and say, what are my prejudices? What are my expectations? What do I think is going to happen here? And and really write those out and say, that's what i got to be careful of. Because I don't want my preconceptions to guide my research. I want to be as open as I can be to whatever it is that I'm feeling, seeing, observing, hearing. Um, so I try to, to combine the academic research and the archives and all of that with... Talking with people, um, one specific example for um, Ben's story was that his wife dies. Well, I, I'm not a man, obviously. I have taught in boy schools, and I've, um, I, I'm taking the voice of a man. But uh, so I interviewed men who had lost their their partners their wives Mm -hmm. and that was enormously helpful to to understand their perception of their role and their frustrations and the pain that they i wouldn't have understood that without hearing it
2: so uh, so much of my writing is um there aren't people alive you know that were then so i seem to be stuck in the 19th century a lot but um for the president salmon which went all the way up until 2004 I was writing recent history, and that was very new for me. And so it was really interesting. I could interview people and talk right. to people about the history that I was writing, and that was a very different experience It's a great for me. book. Mm-hmm. I've read it. It's a great <laughs> book.
1: Yeah, with the... Of course, for me, the, the guidebooks are a little bit different in terms of research because, because really most of my research was on the ground and hiking the trails. And what was interesting is, um, for the Acadia guides is that since I had such a personal history of the place, I often found I had to go back and correct things of certain names that had changed or called or trails that had changed or um, even sometimes mileages, you know, something might be a tenth of a mile different on a sign than what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and because uh, they round differently I guess I don't I don't know I'm not quite sure why that was so that was that was interesting but um, beyond that um, I also did quite a bit of uh, literature uh, literature review see what else was out there because I kept looking for another hiking guide that was written for kids and there aren't any not just for Katie or Maine but really anywhere so did a fair amount of that and I did um, some historical research as well for both of the for the both for Acadia and the Katahdin region. Um, I just find the history of trails fascinating, and I did manage to work some of that into the books, but not as much as I would like. One of the disadvantages of a, a children's book is you know it's, it can't be a tome, and the, and there's limited space, and uh, there's so much information to put in there um, about what's actually there now on the ground that um, only a small amount of the historical aspects were able to
3: get worked in. I, I feel that same frustration, and perhaps now trying to be a novelist, I feel it most much more acutely because I find that I get so fascinated by the research, I want to put it in there, but that's not what really pe- people are really after. They're after the story. So I have to. I always give anything I've written to a l- number of people to read, and often they will say, "Too much history. You got to weave this in differently." <laughs>
2: It's hard to know when to stop researching, you know, because that's, for me, it's one of the more enjoyable parts of the process. But there is a point where you just have to stop and start writing. Yeah.
3: Uh, And you have to realize that, I mean, I keep things in binders. This book about, well,
0: any of these books, there are many, many binders. They don't all fit in the book. (laughs) Right. And one question that I wanted to ask you guys, related to the research, so you, you do a whole bunch of research to get a real fix on how you want to reflect these facts, right? Um, how do you balance the ethics that come up for you as you're looking at the facts, whether it's how you characterize a human being and their perspective, or it's, you know, if it's about um, what's the the information that you want to get out there to your readers about place versus the information you have a sense maybe people don't want to have out there? What how do you how do you sort of think through what are the pieces that I really want to share and have a place in sort of public conversation through my books versus what are the what are the ways do you do you reflect those pieces privately versus publicly in a book?
3: Go for it. I, I'm thinking that the novel is the great cop-out it's <laughs> because i can say anything i want right because it's not true but that's well, harder <laughs> but and what i'm trying to do with the novels is be truthful so i can have i can have many different voices saying many different things <clears throat> and having that conversation themselves yeah
2: i think <clears throat> i i envy people who can write fiction because i would love to be able to and i envy people who can write for young people because those are both things that I would love to be able to do and I just I am so so tied to the facts um and so you know you one thing is so I also um am a journalist I write for newspapers and magazines and so that is the that's the sort of training and ethical standard that I apply to all of my writing um is journalism standards um which are you know, long-standing and adhered to by most journalists. Um, so, you know, verify things with more than one, uh, you know, more than one source. Um, get to the, the that primary source again. Try to find... Um, evidence to back up your claims which is true of both journalism and science Um, and another thing is to realize your own I think Barbara you referenced before sort of your own assumptions and expectations and that includes your own biases and the perspective that you bring to the writing and so I am not a historian or trained historian but I write a lot about history and I found it challenging because so much of the written published history out there is wrong and is not true it's it's kind of scary um and so that i think that is my biggest concern now in my writing is um knowing that you cannot trust just because it's published doesn't mean you can trust it um and so that is something Thinking of other perspectives, like the perspective of Wabanaki people, um, not just the European perspective. So thinking of different people, not just the summer people perspective, but longstanding resident perspective. Um, making sure that you have as many voices as possible.
1: Yeah, yeah I definitely found some um, quite a lot of inaccurate information out there. And as I was telling yeah, I'd, I'd find this great story about a pirate ship or something. And, and there was a lot of verified Stories of it, but but you know, then some others and no. the other. I found other sources that um, debunked it, and um, so yeah, a lot of that. So I'd end up just leaving it out of the book. That was sort of my solution, because I just didn't want to do that. And I think another for me, the the sort of the ethical question was, I really wanted to represent. Um, I mean these. Acadia are not the in Acadia. It's not the most difficult trails in the world, but people have different abilities. So I really was careful, or wanted to be careful, about um, representing the what the trails are like um, and trying to represent something um, as accurately as possible, so that the, you know people know what they can handle. Um, and what they can't. In a larger sense, I think the ethical part of it was, okay, well, what trails do I want to direct people to and what trails? I don't want to take, like, the little trails that are less known by them, especially, like, my, you know, the, the locals wouldn't appreciate it. Those the little back trails that are official trails, but that not the tourists
2: don't know about, I don't want to direct people to those
1: because other people might not appreciate that.
2: I, I do think one of the things that I realized relatively recently is that what you don't write, is just as powerful and important as what you do right
0: mm-hmm.
2: just just one other thing i I think
3: i'm trying to do no harm and i don't i can't identify that in a clear way but I, but that's another ethical
0: consideration if you're um Listening to this show with our three main authors, uh, Hope Rowan, who's a writer of guidebooks for kids, um, hiking guidebooks, Uh, Barbara Kent Lawrence, who's a novelist, um, reflecting the coast of Maine in her stories, and Catherine Schmidt, who's a science writer uh, and environmental journalist. Um, If you've you've either read their books or uh, want to read their books or would like to contribute to the conversation today or have questions for our authors, I invite you to call in. Um, here at the station, the number is two zero seven four six nine zero five zero zero that 's two oh seven four six nine zero five zero zero and um, feel free to call in and and share your thoughts and ask questions of our writers. Um, one question I had for you guys is um, in the process of your research, uh, what are some things that really surprised you and hope you you mentioned one that Trail distances changed. You know, that that was surprising. You know, why did that happen? What are things that that you sort of weren't expecting through the process of your research that that ended up either making it into the book or not making it in?
3: I I can think of one thing. Um, a, A lot of things surprised me all along the route. That's what makes it fun. But I was surprised to find how much Maine had changed after the Civil War and how long it has taken for Maine to recover from the economic um, devastation of the Civil War, and the changes in the economy that opened the way for uh, for visitors and tourists and summer people.
2: Um, one thing that was very interesting and and fairly surprising when I was researching Historic historic Acadia National Park is the um, pretty significant African-American history in down east Maine. Mm -hmm. Um, So Thomas Fraser was the first um, non-native resident of Scudic Point, the Scudic Peninsula. And he was believed to be African American. We don't know a lot about his story because those are people whose stories are not always written down and published and documented. Um, and he actually, um, one of the census files had his wife as being a Native American wife. And so in researching his story, I, <coughs> I learned that there's, there was an African American community in Machias um, that a professor from University of Maine Machias has written about. Um, and some of the last names from down East Maine um, there were African Americans in those families, and so I haven't. I was only able to go so far with that research, um, but I'm hoping with the Park Service, um, we're hoping to do some more research into that.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's the you said Thomas Fraser, right? Yeah, Fraser Point of Fraser Point
2: in Acadia National Park yes. on the Scoot Peninsula. Yes, that's neat. Yep.
1: Yeah, um, I would say that. Um, no, it's pra- it's sort of what you said actually. That it was how how much. Things change, you know, the, the names or even some trail distances or um, the trails themselves that change. Um, and, you know, you sort of go day to day and over time and don't really pick up on those things until you actually have to write it down. And you have this responsibility to, um, speaking of ethics, this responsibility to, to put that forth to other people in an accurate way. And uh, so it, it was just, it. and so I think in a larger sense, um, I would say what surprised me is how it helped me see the park through different eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see it as how, you know, it's it, it's become my home and but to be able to sort of see it as a um as a visitor, or see it as a twelve-year-old girl again, um, and which was really cool. You know, I know when I was writing it, and I'd go for a hike, and I I would see things differently. I would I would notice the you know the osprey calling in the background, or the loon, or a particular type of tree, or things that maybe in my day-to-day life, as I'm just going on a hike after work, I might not have seen otherwise. But when I was trying looking at it through the perspective of a
0: girl visiting the park again, it, it did help me see things with new eyes. And I I wanted to ask you, Hope, um, what made you choose... What I find really fascinating about your two guidebooks is that they're guidebooks full of factual information about the trails through the eyes of a fictional character. So you've sort of blended fiction and nonfiction, which is so neat and unique. And I just want to hear about how you came to that. Well, yeah, and you know, I think I didn't... uh, appreciate that fact and so uh, later the fact and when i was
1: i was going to submit it for some more i was like well what category it's not really fiction but it's not um but it's partly fiction and i had to you know do a, a The publisher had me write a thing in the beginning that okay well this is a fictional story but with real facts in it and i didn't appreciate um, actually that mix of fiction and fact until quite a ways into the process actually um and i i think so for me i think it was just um it, it formed that way from the start in my head, and it was that question of stories, and how important stories are, and how, you know, it's those stories that I remember, as I'm hiking the trails, I remember the stories of, from 20, 30 years ago, of what my family was, happened with my family when we were hiking those trails. And so I think those stories are really important, or a really important part of our memories. Um, so I, and I also wanted to really engage kids, so I figured by taking this
0: approach it would help keep the kids engaged. Great. Thanks. Um, it sounds like we have a caller. Dave from Brooklyn. Welcome to Coastal Conversations.
4: Hi. Thanks. Thanks to the, the show. I wish I'd been able to be totally present for it. I'm you know, in the midst of the day, so I catch things and I miss things, but um, uh, it sounds like a, a wonderful topic. To be writing about and talking about the the repopulation of the uh, w- environment with stories of history uh, for kids, uh, and I'm I'm that's one of the focuses I've been able to maybe uh, intuit that you know the program uh, and. Um, uh, I'm interested in the uh, the references back back to the people even before the first even black settlers on the land, uh, when the land was fully occupied by the natives who also knew these places. And who, uh, I, I would think if I had a little child, which I don't anymore because we're all grown up, but um, <laughs> if I did have a little child, that that little child would be just as fascinated to fantasize along with the storyteller about the, the very, very ancient use of a piece of land, uh, or of a trail. Uh, you know, way, way back before those white birds ever came sailing over the horizon. Yeah. Uh, and put that into the contemporary imagination of our children so that we realize that our history did not begin with the pilgrims. And, uh, and the history of the places we're occupying did not begin with, with you know, our very, very recent uh, uh, colonizer-oriented memory system. I, I think we really need to be returning to a wider panoramic view of what this land has been and can hopefully be again.
0: Thank you so much for your great call, Dave. I'm, I'm seeing our studio guests, all of them nodding, so I appreciate your perspective, and we'll, we'll hear from them
2: on, on what they think. Thanks so much. Thanks, Dave, for your comment. I definitely agree with you. I just Last year I wrote an article about shell middens along the coast of Maine for the Island Journal, and there's more than 2,000 shell heaps all along the coast of Maine, and when you... Um, when you see, you know, when you see how they are present all along the coast of Maine, it's pretty striking evidence of the extensive human use pretty much everywhere. You know, we tend to think of these places like parks that are protected as places where people have never been. And I don't think there's anywhere within the state of Maine that humans have not set foot or not been in in some way um, before those of us who might be there now. Um, and you know, one of the things, not only are those historic stories important, but following them through to the present where those people are still here on the landscape um, and able to tell their own stories of their ancestors' past on the land. And so recognizing that that human use um, extends back very far, um, 12,000 years or since time immemorial, depending on your perspective, all the way to present day.
1: Uh, yeah, you know, while I wasn't able to work um, a whole lot of history into the into the hiking guides that I've written. Um, you do sort of have the, the wheels turning in my head about, you know, some child walking down a physical path, but also a historical path of back in time through history and seeing that history come to life Um, through that child's
2: eyes, and that could be um, very cool. Because so many of the trails uh, in Acadia National Park were canoe carry trails.
3: Yes. And before that, animal trails.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I used to run the Abbey Museum a long time ago. So and this was back a, in the I, 70s? I, this was
0: 79 to 80, 81. And the Abbey Museum is the...
3: It's museum. in Sertimont on uh, Mount Sert Island, and it's the collection of uh, Dr. Shaw of uh, native baskets, many of which were designed, of course, to feed the needs or meet the needs of whites, who were of Europeans who were just coming... But yeah, I the, the wonderful thing about writing and research and books is that you can begin to tell or understand, depending on which side of the pen or computer you're on, a story of somebody who's not there to tell it him or herself. And so there are so many stories. I have about a thousand books in my head that I want to write. It's a little bit of a problem. <laughs> um but these are stories definitely worth telling so that people can understand the perspective of a person coming from a different time and age, because there are things to learn, certainly about stewardship um, and about our environment from
0: from everybody. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And our topic today is about um, being a writer on the main coast, and we have... Main novelist Barbara Kent Lawrence in the studio. That's who was most recently speaking right there. We have Maine science writer Catherine Schmidt and Maine guidebook writer Hope Rowan. Um, and we still have time for some calls, so if you have th- thoughts that you want to share with our writers or questions for them, our number is 207 469 0500. That's 207 469 0500. So, I wanted to ask you because you're both you're all three of you are such researchers um, who are some of your favorite authors this is probably the question that writers get all the time right so we'll narrow it down to who are some of your who, who are some of the main authors that you guys are are interested in
1: uh, oh I'll start well since I wrote kids books I, I feel
0: I can go with
1: the kids out there but, um, and I'd have to say uh, Robert McCloskey, I think, would be up there among my favorites. I mean, there's so many, so many wonderful writers to choose from, Maine authors to choose from. But, but I, you know, I'll go back to sort of what first, my own first connections to Maine, and, and Robert McCloskey was certainly one of them. And I think it was, um, I don't know if it was Time of Wonder or One Day in Maine, but when he's describing the storm coming through and uh and there's sort of these repetitive words throughout as it's building and it's building and he he really sort of creates that building of the storm with these words that also build and uh, the illustrations are just also just so capture that feeling of that feeling of as a as a storm is approaching in maine in the summer and as i was out kayaking the other evening and i the water—it was actually at the tail end of a storm, but the water just was almost looked like a watercolor, and just like it was painted, and it was reminding me of of, of his books and the way he was able to capture what
0: is so special about the Maine coast. Hmm. Classic main children's author Robert McCloskey, who's one of my favorites as well. But
3: if um, I think Ruth Moore and Laura Beam and. Um, Country of the Pointed Furs, I mean, there's a lot of really good main stories which capture what was, what came before, uh, before where we are now, which, and uh, this is a slight sidetrack, but The Mortal Sea talks about Writes he writes about and that's by Jeff Bolster. Yes, and I was trying to remember Jeff's name. <laughs> Thank much. you yeah. for bailing me um, out. The Mortal Sea, by the Jeff Mortal Sea, Bolster. Yeah. And, and he points out that what we think is normal was not normal in the generation or two before. And so to really understand what was normal, I mean, forty miles of Pogey or Menhaden, you know, schools of forty miles of Pogey, each filtering four to six gallons of water a minute. That's a powerful force. Now we're, we think it's normal if we get a couple of little schools along the coast, but it's not what was normal 100 years ago. So the importance of history is to look for, it, or one of them is to me, to look for what was normal, and that's true with stories of, of people as well. And so we have to go back to, to that writing to find out what was normal.
2: This is a tough question, mm-hmm. um, and and for fear of missing someone, I'm just going to say two for now. One is Rachel Carson um, is my favorite main writer, mm-hmm. and I also want to mention um, Rachel Slade, whose recent book that was published in 2018, Into the Raging Sea, recently won the Maine Literary Award for Nonfiction for uh, 2018. And it's an incredible book. Um, It's the true story of the sinking of the El Faro cargo ship, um, including the death of 30-something mariners, several of whom were from Maine. And she just does a really masterful job of focusing on the people who died as characters and as individuals and following their stories and who they were and I think really honoring them Um, even the captain who who comes across fairly harsh throughout the story but in the end um, there's there's sort of some redemption for him as a character as well and then her research into the shipping industry and transportation industry and the coast guard and then the whole then there's research on hurricanes and the storms and um, it's it's very visceral and it's just a really masterful book and I look forward to reading more from her in the future. Can you say her name again? Rachel Slade, and the book is Into the Raging Sea. Great.
3: And I'd just like to say I agree 100%. I thought that was a really powerful, well-executed, and moving book.
0: And the El Faro went down in a hurricane, right, uh, maybe three or four years ago? And there yes. were a lot of Maine Maritime Academy Correct. graduates. Mm-hmm. Including the, the captain, yep. Including so
2: um, it went down in a hurricane off of the Bahamas. Yeah
0: have to look out for that one, yeah. Um, And then, uh, in terms of your own writing, um, how does you, the individual, how do you get reflected in your writing? Do you find yourself in the words that come out? Perhaps we'll start with the fiction writer.
3: (laughs) And remember, this is a a fiction writer who's mostly written nonfiction, but fiction is fascinating. And I write primarily to understand something better, um, and I'm everybody in that book, in, in both books, and I think that's probably true for most writers. And the characters, I've heard it said so many times before, and I thought, this is absolute garbage, um, but it's not. The, t- the characters develop themselves precisely, perhaps, because they are coming from deep within the writer in ways, uh, in connections that she or he hadn't made for him or herself so yes i'm becky but i'm also ben and i'm also some of the characters in there who aren't very nice and you know, but um but i try to amplify that by listening to lots of other people and looking at other sources and growing the character out of a seed that perhaps is is within me great it's
1: interesting what you said about um, understanding things better because as as much time as i've spent in acadia since i was young and um as much as well as i know the place i i think i i learned some things and as i said saw saw things through new perspective when i was writing this book and and i think for me the main character uh hattie um you know someone um said, how do you get how how do you get into the head of a 12 year old you know 12 year old girl's like well i was one once <laughs> and uh, i think i think when i'm hiking i still get, i think i still sort of like as a 12 year old girl in some ways and still see things that way and I think there definitely is a piece of me in Hattie um, what's more I think um, I think she's who I'd aspire to be in some ways I think I love what I um, brought to brought to her and uh, what I love about her is the enthusiasm that she has for the main outdoors and she's just so gung-ho about it and enthusiastic about it and uh, I think I'm becoming and, willing to you know go that extra mile and and uh, so i think i i appreciate that her about
0: her i i love that that you what you just shared about aspiring to be a 12 year old character that you wrote about. that's really that's really funny how about you katherine
2: uh well my books are all third person um some of my essays and articles i'll use first person if it fits the story but i'm in there through my through the perspective and the choices that are made and what to write about. So there's always some subjectivity there.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah. Um,
0: What books are on your nightstand right now, or on your kitchen counter? I had to write them down Uh because there's several.
3: One is called Last Train to London. The other is Resisting the the Nazi Invader. And the third is Your Inner Fish. Great. But remember, I'm doing a book about um, my, my British family during World War II. So that accounts for the first two.
0: Great. Thank you.
1: Uh, well, there was that one I mentioned earlier, The On Trails by Robert Moore. <laughs> That's uh, fascinating. I'm still just halfway through that one. Um, another one I'm in the middle of for my, for my hammock time. For some summer reading, I'm uh, reading... Um, Nevada Barr's book about that she had said in, in Acadia, I finally caught up. She's a um, author that uh, sets all her books and they're sort of murder mysteries in, in national parks across the country. And and for years I thought, oh, she's going to do one in Acadia, and two years ago she did. And I I uh, got to go see her, and I'm just finally reading that one now. So that was a fun one.
2: That's have. great. Unfortunately, summer is not the time <laughs> when I get much reading done. I have big aspirations um but it's just so busy when you write about science on the main coast that's when the field work is taking place is in the summer but on my nightstand is there there by tommy orange i can't wait to go look up all these books that i don't know um and and uh
0: if if there was someone that you could write a biography about none of you have written biographies i don't think Uh, who would you go back and write who would you write a biography about now I a mean person. I, I
3: thought that was a really. I think that's a really interesting question. I, I've written things like, you know, little short articles for magazines about people. Um, and there's a man who, who's. I'm only going to give his first name, which is Norman, um, and nobody knows about him. And he lives on Mount Desert Island, and he's an absolutely heroic, fascinating, wonderful, kind, good, knowledgeable person. And I'd love to get to know him even better. And the way to do that is to write about him. Great. We'll look for a book about Norman.
2: (laughs) I am writing a biography right now. You are? Great. (laughs) great. Great. Um, I am writing a biography of Charles Eliot, um, who was the leader of the Champlain Society, which was this group of Harvard student naturalists who camped on Mount Desert Island in the 1880s and conducted the first comprehensive natural history surveys of the island, which they published in their notebooks and logbooks, which are held by the Mount Desert Island Historical Society. Um, And his story, he went on to be an apprentice with Frederick Law Olmsted and become a landscape architect. And in his work, both in Maine and Massachusetts, He witnessed um, threats to the landscape and Mm -hmm. worked his short life to protect them. So he founded the Trustees of Reservations in Massachusetts, which was the world's first land trust and the model for all the land trust operating today. Um, And that trustees model inspired the creation of Acadia National Park. So he has ties to a lot of conservation Mm -hmm. land. So it's a history of land conservation and motivations for land conservation told through his biography. That's great.
0: I'm looking forward to it. And Hope, who would you write a biography about?
1: I don't know specifically, but I think maybe it would be not so much a um, well-known person or historical figure, but maybe just more sort of an everyday person, um, just to sort of, um, and maybe a fisherman, to get a different perspective or um, to show that... You know, you might have certain ideas about someone, but they probably are more complex than you think. And now how everyone does have, everyone has an interesting story. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's what's so fast. I love hearing the stories about how people came to me. Because, and I just think everyone has an interesting story, and I'd like to show that.
0: Great. Thank you. That's such a great note to end on, that um, the curiosity of people's stories. Everybody's got a good story. Um, so we've come to the end of our hour, amazingly. It always surprises me. Um, with our three main authors. So thank you so much to Barbara Kent Lawrence, our novelist in the room who also writes nonfiction, uh, main science writer Catherine Schmidt, and main guidebook writer Hope Rowan. It's been really great to chat with all three of you. Um, If you're looking for the names of their books, we'll be posting all of that on the Coastal Conversations uh, website. Um, So just Google Coastal Conversations and you'll find it. Um, Thanks to the folks who called in. Next month, our show will be about the ecology and economy of rockweed in Maine, the ubiquitous seaweed of the Maine coast that's been in the news a lot lately. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. So please join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by paul anderson thanks to amy brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for on the wing with joel raymond this is natalie springle from maine sea grant wishing you
4: a good morning